Hi everyone, I'm Ainsley Hooper and welcome to Ainsley Hooper Chats With. This is a podcast about disability, speaking to people with disabilities and just to give people an insight into the real lives of people with disabilities. And today I have Yen Perkis with me. And so Yen's been, um, actually I'm going to stop there and Yen, you can introduce yourself. Hi everyone. Hi Ainsley. Thank you so much for having me on your chat. It's really lovely to be here. My name's Yen. I'm an autistic and non-binary advocate, author, mentor, public speaker, public servant. Um, I live in Canberra and um, yes, I'm really happy to be here. It's lovely to be on the show. Thank you. For Thanks for joining me. Yen. I've been following all your stuff on, um, on Facebook on LinkedIn, basically everywhere. So it's been, it's really great to finally be able to chat to you and have you on my first episode. So yeah, just, um, I mean, obviously you've, you've got a lot there that you get up to. Um, how, how about you just um, tell us what you've been up to lately? I know that uh, we've spoken recently, you were talking about um, the podcast awards or something around that. Around that. Yes, um, I've been asked to be, um, a member of the judging panel for the Australian Podcast Awards um, next month, which is very exciting. Um, it's always nice. I do a lot of stuff in the disability sphere, but sometimes I get asked to do something in the sort of wider world and I always enjoy those things and I'm very glad that they have a disability advocate as part of their panel, which is lovely. I'm working on a new book uh, with Barb Cook from Spectrum Women and that one's all about advocacy and how to be a good self-advocate. Um, that's going really well. We're supposed to finish a draft of that by the end of this month. So fingers crossed. I am working on it. It's on my list for this afternoon. Um, I have a new book coming out in March, which is called The Autistic Trans Guide for Life, which is with um, trans and autistic advocate Gwen Lawson, and it's going to be fantastic. I have a new book that came out a couple of months ago, which is doing really well, and that's with my good friend Tanya Masterman, and it's called um, The Awesome Autistic Go-To Guide, and it's for tweens and teens on the autism spectrum, and it's all about self-knowledge and empowerment and autistic pride and all those good things. So, um, yeah, I've got a couple of presentations coming up. I'm giving a talk on the 19th of September, next Saturday, all about gender diversity and autism, which should be good. I should probably practice that this afternoon as well. And um, yeah, I guess that's that's about it that I can think of. Wow. So with COVID, do you, have you found COVID affected, affected what, what you're doing? It has a lot, actually. Mm. Uh, I often uh, speak at conferences and things like that. And the last conference I went to was last October. So um, there really have not been a lot of face-to-face -face events. I've done a lot of presentations on video and on Zoom, mm -hmm. uh, lots of panel discussions on Zoom, which has been really good. I did one for Vic Water for their new disability network called Water Able. So that was with a couple of other disability advocates, which is really fantastic. So you sort of get used to using Zoom as a, a means of, um, you know, of communication interstate and things like that and I actually quite like it I, I, I used to like traveling but I also like staying at home because it's much more convenient um, just to be at home and, and talking on the laptop so yeah I mean I don't I don't think it's good I don't think yeah I'm not 
happy that we're all isolated and things like that. But there is a, a level of convenience to it um, mm. that I do enjoy. Mm. Yeah. So, um, so have you found, so you're speaking engagements, have you found that they've still kept up because of the fact that we've got Zoom and all that kind of stuff? Or have you found the, with the conferences, et cetera, have you found that those things have dropped off? A couple of events that I was booked for have just been cancelled and they're not happening. Okay. Um, and other events are still happening, but they're on Zoom so um, or video. So, mm -hmm. But something, I was booked to speak at the Australian Human Resources Institute conference back in May mm -hmm. and that just got straight out cancelled. So I'm hoping when things get back to the way they were that they'll book me again for that conference because I, I was quite excited about that one. Um, but, yeah, a number of events that would have been face-to-face -face are now online. So I'm mm -hmm. speaking at a Neurodiversity and Employment Symposium next month, um, which, is, um, which is definitely online. Uh, been on a couple of online summits, things like that. I've done some work with the ICANN Network um, on Zoom and things like that. So, yeah, it is, some things are just gone. Some things are just not happening. Uh, but other things have been adapted for online. Mm -hmm. Would you say the majority has been adapted or do you think it's still 50-50 or just, just interested Probably. from a, a disability perspective? Probably about 50-50, I would say. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, no, no, you, you and I were talking uh, last week and um, I'm very, very interested in your journey in regards to um, autism because I remember you were saying that you weren't... Um, you weren't diagnosed until later on. So, um, and that really fascinated me. So basically uh, for, for me, like the reason I, I wanted to start this podcast is I wanted to be able to give people a more, a three-dimensional uh, that they may, may not have not um, seen, seen it before, but a more three-dimensional idea of disability and understanding that we're not just, um, you know, we're, we're not two-dimensional and we're not just a, a stereotype. So I'd love, to not, I'd love you just, just to let us know a little bit about your journey um, being autistic and how you came to be diagnosed and what your experience has been in relation to that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I, I was, I'm 46 and so I'm the generation of autistic people who were pretty much all diagnosed as adults and often okay. more people are diagnosed later than I was. I was diagnosed at 20. Um, so I knew when I was at school that there was something about me that wasn't like the other kids because none of them liked me. I was very unpopular. I was very bullied. Uh, because I was different and I was very academic. I actually enjoyed the academic side of school and I liked coming first and things like that. It was the one positive attribute I had to my mind was that I was very academic. Um, but that made me very unpopular with a lot of the kids. So I knew I was different and I was desperate not to be different, but I didn't know quite how to manage that. And I left home at 17. I had a lot of issues with my family, um, not that there was anything wrong with them, but I, I just had a lot of arguments with them and stuff like that. Um, so I moved out at 17 and got involved with some really dodgy people and ended up, when I was 20, I ended up in prison. It's a long story. Um, I'm not going to tell the long story, but I do have an autobiography called Finding a Different Kind of Normal, which tells you all about it. Um, so when I was in prison, my mum met someone at her workplace who had a son who'd just been diagnosed with what was then called Asperger's. 
And this son sounded very much like me, my mum thought. So she sent, she organised a psychologist who was an expert in autism to come and diagnose me. And so I did all the assessment while in the visitor centre in Fairley Prison. Um, and this, um, this clinician came in as a visitor. I'm actually connected with her still. And she said that, you know, she was quite intimidated to come into that situation. Um, but, um, yeah, so she diagnosed me with this Asperger's thing, which I didn't accept. For a number of reasons I didn't accept it. One of them was I really hated myself. And autism was very raw. It was a very personal thing. And it was very much, to my mind, very true but I couldn't imagine it as being true because I hated it so much. I didn't want to have a disability. I really didn't. And I also thought my parents were just making excuses for my poor behaviour and that that was what it was about. It wasn't an actual diagnosis. It was just my parents making excuses for me, um, you know, being difficult, um, to put it mildly. And so it took me a further seven years before I accepted it and several years after that before I embraced it. So I talk a lot about autistic pride and self-knowledge and being positive about who you are and all of those things. But for me, that took a long time to come about and it really wasn't until after I published my autobiography in 2006 that I was really proud of who I was. And even then, it still took a bit of time um, and I had a wonderful mentor along the way, um, Polly Samuel, who sadly is no longer with us. And she was incredible. Um, she was one of the first autistic advocates um, in the world and certainly in Australia um, that were, you know, had a public profile and things like that. So um, she was fantastic. And she encouraged me to write my book, my first book, which I did. And it was published. And, you know, here I am. Wow. That's an amazing, that's it. Amazing story. When you, you when you were talking about um, obviously about the, the the book about being in prison, I, I I'm 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 going to be I'm going to read that one. I'd be very interested to, um, to see. Do you find that your personality has changed since then to now, or was your personality? Yeah, because I'm just trying. I'm trying to imagine. I guess, like you see, like you know, do you know, like Orange is the New Black. Yes. Yeah, like you know how they got the tough women in prison, and yeah, I'm just trying to imagine because you, because you're, you're I'm so very vulnerable, and I was very nice, and I survived by being nice mm -hmm. and by buying people things. Right. So my parents my account and I didn't spend any of it on anything for myself it was like cigarettes for this person chocolate for that person and I, I also stopped being myself so I tried to take on a persona that mm -hmm. was tougher than I actually was and right. I was quite convinced I was terrified the whole time that people would see through me but none of them did wow. very good at marketing when I was younger I was quite at it so when I was at school I was terrible at masking but when I was a bit older I mastered the art quite well so <laughs> When I was about 25 and I got out of that lifestyle, mm. I remember thinking, I don't know who I am. Mm. I remember thinking, well, if I don't know who I am, who do I want to be? Mm. And so I started thinking about what elements of my character were a good thing to have. And so I sort of really did reinvent myself. Mm -hmm. And so my personality is the same, mm -hmm. but very different. Yes. I'm still the same person. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm very different. And I've chosen a life where I'm ethical or where I try and be ethical, mm -hmm. uh, where I'm respectful of others, where I'm, you know, industrious, where I'm engaged, all of those things. Mm -hmm. And those qualities I 
I decided that should you know should be me mm-hmm. I remember when I was 25 thinking I wanted to be ordinary and to my mind that sounds dreadful but to my mind what that meant was to have a professional job a mortgage and a suit and an education I didn't have any of those things mm-hmm. I shouldn't have got any of those things by logic you know, most people who've come from where I've come from do not work in the public service and have okay. a mortgage. Mm-hmm. They just don't. Mm-hmm. But I do. I don't have a mortgage anymore because I sold the property. Mm-hmm. But I will have a mortgage in the future when I buy another one. Um, but, you know, so I'm very unusual in that regard. Mm-hmm. And I think it is that, that deciding who I was going to be. And I've been very, I've always been very confident. I don't know how that works with my history, but when I've wanted to achieve something good, I've achieved something good. You know, I have a master's degree. Mm-hmm. I got a master's degree because I wanted a graduate job and I figured I needed a degree in order to get a graduate job. So I went to uni and I, well, I got three degrees. And a lot of people couldn't do that just mm. through determination alone. And when I was getting my degrees, I, was, I had substance abuse problems. I had alcohol problems because I was living in public housing and all my neighbours were alcoholics. And I was desperate to be socially accepted mm. by the neighbours. And so right. I started drinking with alcoholics. You have to be a drinker in order to socialise or they think you're being rude. And so I didn't like the fact that I drank way too much, but I did drink way too much. And I was going into uni every day and I was in tutorials hungover and cranky and all of those things. But I got a master's degree. So, yeah, it's a funny thing. Wow. Determination. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's interesting. So what's your master's degree in? Visual arts. So what... Actually, someone asked me the other day, um, what's the difference, visual arts and fine arts? What's the, do you know what the, the difference with that is? The difference with that is how pretentious you want to sound. <laughs> Mine's technically in fine arts, but I had this, I knew this autistic guy who used to make furniture and he always talked about fine furniture and it used to grate me severely, <laughs> very pretentious. So uh-huh. I was visual arts because when I say fine arts I feel like I might be a bit of a wanker so <laughs> it, I don't really think there's much of a difference I think they're just different ways of saying you get to paint stuff in both degrees and I've yeah. got to paint stuff so mm. lots yeah. of painting lots of video I've done a lot of video art um yeah lots of stuff like that photography mm. that was fun that was a good time yeah yeah uh um, going, so going back to um, w- when you got diagnosed, um, what, was, what, what was the instigator into that? It was really my parents meeting that, that colleague of my okay. mum's and yeah. her about her son and it just sounded very much like me. I did have a psychiatrist in 1996 mm-hmm. who had issues with women mm-hmm. and had issues with my diagnosis and misdiagnosed me um, with borderline personality disorder, which is the most common misdiagnosis for autistic people, particularly women. Um, it's basically a, a label of histrionic woman syndrome. Uh, I mean, some people actually have it, but yeah. to my knowledge, most of the people diagnosed with it don't, and most of them are autistic women. Um, okay. And so women that I talk to have come through that, if they've accessed mental health services, they've been given that misdiagnosis and it's never quite sat with them. Mm -hmm. Um, 
certainly wasn't me. I did a I did a residential program for people with borderline personality disorder, and within the first few days, I realised that the other people in the program were all like each other mm-hmm. and not like me. And so I figured, okay, I'm in the wrong place. But it was actually a really helpful place. So I didn't tell anyone I was in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, it's, I acted that help and it was, it was good help. It was, yeah, it was useful. Yeah. That, that is, I saw a, a discussion on, on Facebook the other day. Yeah, and it was about the hysteric, hysteria thing. Um, yeah. And it was interesting because, oh, excuse my dog in the background, Sheldon, <laughs> um, yeah. So basically, there was um, someone was um asking about it. They were, uh, I'm forty two, yeah. and so they were from the younger generation. I think they were born in the nineties or something like that. Yeah. And yes, yeah, so, um, when I actually, I um, I, I linked something in, in the Facebook group about hysteria and like oh, it was actually about with the women troubles. Yeah, they're wondering, they've yeah. heard about women troubles and they're like, so what is women troubles? And I actually posted this thing that they're like, wow, can't believe that, yeah, that yeah, that kind of thing actually existed. But And it's interesting just to see how we've gone from such a short time, in re- even like in regards to disability, like um, I, I think about, you know, when I was in primary school, and like you said, like it, it was, it's something that like being autistic wasn't something that was diagnosed. No, no, it wasn't known about it really. Yeah. And it was, and I don't know about your experience, but I know for like when I was in primary school, there was children that were clearly would have been diagnosed if that had been the case at the time. Um, but they were considered to be troublemakers and all this kind of stuff. But, and, and I think you also as well, they were the kids that, you know, the teachers would say, don't laugh, you're just going to encourage them. Like, yeah. you know, like doing things in the, in the like, yeah. 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 Class plan. A lot of people with ADHD were the class plan. I was the class plan in primary school. Yeah. And I was the high school, so I don't know how that works. But a lot of kids with ADHD are the class plan as well because yeah. it's a way of getting validation. You know, mm. People laugh, it feels good. And that's why yeah. so many people stand up comedy. <laughs> and that's and it's really funny because they were all and they still are. They're the people that I still remember from primary school. And I was always yeah. impressed. Like there was just certain things that they did that the school frowned upon. But I still to this day found it impressive as hell. Like yeah. the things that they came up with. Like, yeah, just yeah. Yeah, just thinking outside of the box and yeah, it was yeah, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now tell me uh, the books that you're, the, the, can you t- tell me a little bit more about the books that you're writing or are they under the wraps at the moment because of what the process? No, I could no, definitely talk about the books I'm writing. So one of them I've already written yeah. and that one's production. So the publisher's turning it into a book and that's called The Autistic Trans Guide to Life. And it's basically a handbook for autistic and transgender and gender diverse adults mm-hmm. about things like coming out and, you know, managing being trans and autistic in the workplace and some of the issues specific to trans and autistic adults, um, people asking things like, um, 
you know, why have you only come out now? You're mm -hmm. 62. Wouldn't you have come out earlier? That kind of thing. A um, bunch of really helpful strategies for adults as well. Um, and some information about autism and, and gender diversity and looking at what's the difference between gender dysphoria and sensory issues because for some people, the two can, you know, they're not sure which is what. Okay. And am I trained? Do I just have sensory issues around certain parts of my body and things like that? Right. It's really practical. Wen Lawson, who's the co-author, is just wonderful. And I've known of Wen and his work for... Oh, God, for a very long time, since about 2001, I think. Um, and when was diagnosed at a similar time to me, but he's, he's a, the next generation up for me, so it's a bit older. He's written a wonderful book called Transitioning Together um, with his wife, Beatrice. Um, so he's transgender and he, um, he transitioned from female to male. So used to be a lesbian couple and now a straight couple. Um, and he's, he's wonderful. I, I've always really respected Wen and his work he's just a really decent person like an elder statesman of the autism world so getting to write a book with him was absolutely a privilege and it, it's a good book it's mm. full of useful information so that's interesting you're talking about the sensory side of things and so I guess for me like obviously you think your five senses smell touch taste I can't think of the other two off the top of my head. Um, yeah, so like the, the, when you say the sen sensory, I just immediately think of the external. So for when you're talking about sensory in, in relation to transgender, et cetera, what's, um, what, can you just explain that a little bit further? Because it's... Well, if, if something feels wrong yeah. for a reason like touching a breast, for example, is that a sensory issue of being of touch, like a sensory processing issue? Or is it that the person is uncomfortable with the fact they have breasts? Right. And Wen's written a bit, and I can't, I can't say what he said because I haven't read it for some time, but Wen's written a bit in the book about ways to determine if something is from sensory processing disorder or if it's from gender dysphoria. Right. Interesting. Because or both for that matter. So, yeah, because some people aren't quite sure if something relates to gender dysphoria or if it's because they have sensory processing disorder and it's actually a sensory issue, um, which, you know, can be quite confusing for people. Mm, yeah. Because I've, I've, um, I've, I've read a little bit about that in regards to transgender and, yeah, people... Um, autistic people being confused about, um, I remember reading one story and I, I can't remember the full details, but it was somebody who had transitioned and yeah. then they transitioned back and then they transitioned again or something like that. And it was to do, it, I think, it, I, I, yeah, I couldn't get into it too much, but, um, and try and get as to what they were trying to get at, but, it was just about that, that confusing state and that, that explains it a bit more because I do remember the actual, the, the angle of the story was about, um, it, it, was a, it was arguing against to and for the whole transitioning side of things. Um, but yeah, I think with what you've said there, it adds another layer into it. So it's not just a matter of 
people being confused and mistaken. It's like, yeah, so I th- the, the article tried to make it sound like people are mistaken about their own yeah. identity, and that's and obviously that's, that's not the case. Yeah, that stuff's really problematic because mm. it gets very ableist when people are saying, oh, no, trans- transgender autistic people, it's just because they're autistic and they don't, they don't know and they're confused and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And actually that's really um, disrespectful to autistic Absolutely. people. Absolutely. It suggests we have no idea about yeah. our experience and, and, you know, it's a whole thing, you know, that whole thing that causes forced sterilisations of, of women with disabilities mm. and like that it's like oh they can't raise a child they can't know their gender you know it gets very paternalistic and, and actually very very ableist yeah absolutely and it shows just how complex the situation really is it's not it's not cut and dried it's not um yeah it, it's there's so many things involved in it that it's yeah and it's not just a case of a person with a disability being confused about their identity and you know they've got no right to decide that or yeah yeah wow what about um, so? Uh, what about the other books that you've written or that you've that you've been involved oh, in written? I've got one on the way, which is about advocacy, um, sort of basically how to self advocate for neurodiverse people. So, mm-hmm. uh, Hook, who I'm writing that with, um, is autistic, ADHD, dyslexic, and um, she's awesome. Actually, check her out if you're interested in neurodivergences. Then mm-hmm. check out. Uh, Cook and Spectrum Women is the site that she has created and is now a wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, she wrote or she edited Spectrum Women, which I've written a chapter for. Um, she edited, I think she edited the new one, Spectrum Women Parenting, which is for autistic mums, basically, which is a good thing. Obviously, I didn't contribute to that one because I'm not a mum or a dad. Um and yeah so writing with her is really lovely and it's just a a practical advisory book about how to self-advocate so talking about everything from um you know setting up a facebook group to talking to your family about um advocacy stuff and talking to your partner work education things like that leadership there's a whole chapter on leadership which is really cool um and yeah so that's that's good we do need to finish that one so that's on the list and the ones that i've written i've got two about resilience for parents of autistic kids and it's two different age groups and that's with dr emma goodall who's a wonderful autistic advocate author who i've written four books with i've got one that came out this year called women on the spectrum which i also wrote with emma which is once again a practical sort of how-to guide in a question and answer sort of format. So it's pose a question, you know, what do I do about moving out of home? And then we've answered that question. And there's about 150 questions in there that we've answered that are things that women and non-binary folks on the spectrum might have issues with and need advice. I do have an autobiography that came out in 2006. It's a little out of date now, but it's still good. I've got The Wonderful World of Work, which is an employment book for autistic teens. What else have I got? Oh, The Guide to Good Mental Health on the Autism Spectrum. It is what it sounds like. That's with Emma Goodall and Dr. Jane Nugent, which is, that's my other bestseller. And the the absolute bestseller is The Awesome Autistic Go-To Guide, which I mentioned before with Tanya Masterman. 
and that's for kids and it's all about positive self-knowledge and empowerment and pride and all of those lovely things. I've got chapters in a bunch of other books which I won't list because we'll be here until midnight. <laughs> wow. Wow. Oh. So uh, when you did your Masters, did you have to write lots of um, articles to, to go into journals as well or...? Uh, not so much journals. I had to write a thesis, um, yep. but it was a corporate master's. So I did a lot of practical stuff, yep. exhibition, things like that. So, um, but I did write, did write a thesis and I referenced my autobiography, which just came out in the second year of my master's. So uh, wow. it's pretty good to be able to reference your own book. <laughs> I remember because like I've, um, yeah, I've done my, so to date, I've done my honours at uh, anthropology honours degree so I'm an applied anthropologist at this stage um and I remember I um in in honours I had to I think it was honours no hold on yeah it would have been I had to write yeah because we had yeah we did we did four coursework subjects and then we did the thesis the thesis subjects and I remember um in the coursework subjects having to uh, yeah ha having to one of them was having to write a journal article and we had to and it was one of the first ones where we had to decide for ourselves what we were going to write as opposed to being told this is what you're going to write give us you know two thousand words that kind of thing and then when it got to the thesis i actually got to reference that because it had been published in a journal and i was just like oh i felt like i'd made it <laughs> I don't. I think I'm the only person that's ever cited it, but you know, <laughs> uh, I, I was part of a, um, a a couple of papers on autism and mental health, and that was pretty exciting. I'd never been in an academic paper. Yes, yeah, it's pretty cool. Of course, no one reads these things apart from other students. But <laughs> <laughs> so I, I remember for a little while, I was sort of like, I don't know about you, but like, do you look on Google and see there's, there's a thing that tracks yeah, who cited you? Yeah, yeah, yeah oh, I love that. Yeah. So, no. My autobiography has been cited lots of times. Nice. And my mental health has been cited lots of times, but none of the other ones. No one, no, no academic is interested in my resilience guides for parents, sadly. Uh, they should be. They're awesome. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, and I just, oh, I get all tingly when I think about all that kind of stuff. That, that's the geek in that absolute nerd in me with the academic stuff. When you yeah. have a book, I'll, I'll tell you this for when you have a book, mm -hmm. you can go onto all the different Amazons around the world yeah. and look at your sales rank and it changes. And sometimes you go on there and it says, bestseller and then you scroll down and it's got all of the categories it's in that it's selling really well in and you can click on it and then you see all the other books that are doing well and where yours is it changes and sometimes you just google it and go oh it's a bestseller again yay not that i'm a sad book nerd or anything like that oh my oh pretty cool Oh, and then wow. Book Depository has sales ranks and Barnes & Noble has sales ranks as well. But Amazon's the best because they've got Australian, American, English, Canadian, and then Mexican. There's Amazon.com.mx and that's Mexican Amazon. And my books are on Mexican Amazon. It's wow. so cool. Japanese wow. Amazon. Japanese. I don't know who in Mexico is buying my books, but they're on there. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Oh. It's, it's awesome. You should write a book just so you can do that. Oh, it's I tell you what. Like I've been, I've been thinking of, I've been thinking about that. Um, and 
I mean, I've been writing a lot ever since. And it's, and I have to say, it's like following people like yourself and other people who are already out there writing all this stuff. It's just, it's actually got me thinking about all the stuff that's happened to me and all the things I've experienced that me growing. So, I mean, obviously these podcasts are about my guests, but just a little bit about myself is that yeah, growing up, um, you know, I, I've got a spine before I'm a wheelchair user, um, but I didn't sort of have much to do with, with other people in wheelchairs for a certain amount of time. So um, I didn't have the, like the people to benchmark against my experiences to see. Yeah. I thought the experiences I was having were just individual to me and therefore it was up to me. It was my reactions were, were, were my reactions. And, you know, I, I was thought, oh, I'm just too sensitive when things upset me or whatever. I thought, oh, I was just, I'm too sensitive. And then growing up and then becoming more involved with other people and seeing other, other things that have been written, I'm realising, no, I'm not too sensitive. It was a genuine reaction to the things that were happening that weren't meant to happen. And yeah. so it, it's sort of, yeah, it's sort of, it's got me starting to write things. And now it's like, yeah, well, there, there's a hell of a lot of stuff involved in there. And that's actually, um, I'm going back to do my PhD and I was going back at the start uh, just before COVID hit and things started to happen. But so it's, it's put off my vacation, but I'm st I am still going to go ahead, ahead and do it. Um, it's just it delayed it a little bit because of um, things happening within yeah. the COVID world. So yeah, but, um, and it, but it's been great to see people like yourself and the other advocates and, um, yeah, other like from all types of all experience of disability, um, and then yeah, and see how how my place is also can add to add to that as well. Because the thing is, like I've noticed as well, is when I've started writing and putting things up in the public space, my family are commenting on things that they never even knew that I experienced before as well. So that. And that, that's another interesting layer as well. Do you find your family, uh, like, do you find with you, what, what you're writing that some of your family have read it and they're like, oh, wow, we never realised that? Yeah, sometimes. Um, that my parents are pretty close readers of my work. Mm -hmm. I have a weekly email that I send out, send out every week because it's a weekly email. And I put my blogs and anything I've done recently, I put in there. And I know my parents read every week. Mm. My step-grandma, who's only eight years older than my mum, so she's not hugely old, but, you know, um, she reads it, I think, and her husband reads it. Mm -hmm. My brother has recently started reading my work. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think he did for some time. I think those, I don't know what was going on there, but he didn't, he didn't read my work for some time, but I think now he is. And it is, I mean, my career, my advocacy career is about my experiences. Mm -hmm. I'm very personal. It's a, my work is very much based in me and my story and my experience. And I know mm -hmm. some other advocates think that's not the way to go about it and that it should be more political. It should be broader than just one person. But for me, I'm telling my story. I'm a fan of narrative, mm -hmm. big fan of narrative. I think humans are narrative creatures. We tell stories and we've always told stories. That's 
throughout history. I mean, history is a story or a number of stories. Um, so, you know, a lot of my work is extremely personal. And I think when I started writing, my family were a bit horrified, but I think now they're quite used to it. So my autobiography, I made sure I wasn't rude to anyone in my autobiography, even the horrible people. I just put what happened and my observations of what happened. And I think that's one of the reasons it's a successful book is that it's not me whining about how everyone was mean to me. It's just me saying, here's a story. When I was in the documentary, Alone in a Crowded Room, the filmmaker interviewed my dad. Um, and it's, his bit is really lovely, actually. And everyone that saw it said, oh, your dad's the most beautiful person, which he is. He's lovely. Um, so that was really quite personal for him as well. Um, and it's, you know, one of my worries when I first started in my journey as an advocate was that I didn't want to actually upset my family. I didn't want to say anything that offended them or mm -hmm. made them comfortable or anything like that I think I have done that I think I've made them feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. and upset them on many occasions mm -hmm. but they don't mind so much because I also I'm very outward, outwardly loving and respectful of them and mm -hmm. you know my parents are the reason I'm still here um you know they stood by me when nobody else did mm -hmm. and I recognize that and I appreciate that and uh, you know they I owe them, there's a few people I owe my current life to, and my parents are definitely those. I remember my mum saying when I was in prison, you know, the, the middle class parents just weren't there. They all just distanced themselves from their children wow. that got in trouble. And my parents didn't do that. And my mum said, you know, if I did that, you would have been all alone. Mm. And she didn't want to be all alone. And, you know, that's beautiful. And yeah. Very in my life I mean that as I say I'm only here because of her and my dad wow that's interesting like yeah it's so interesting to think about those other people and what influence <clears throat> yeah like from you you having that support them not what difference that's made wow. oh absolutely I, yeah that the support was you know and they always I remembered, you know, I had several times when I had to move house suddenly and all of those things. They were always there, you know, they'd always pack their car full of my crap and move me to wherever else and no complaints or anything like that. You know, this is just what you do. If being a parent involves, you know, moving your criminal child um, to another squalid house, well, if that's what parenting involves, we'll do it well. You know, it, very grateful, really. Very grateful. And a lot of people wouldn't have done that. No, 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 amazing. <clears throat> so, again, I, I noticed, sorry, um, I'll start again. On my, um, my blog or um, on my Facebook post, etc., um, you would have noticed a while ago I, I did a post which was 10 things I want people to know about disability. And yeah. That started, it was interesting because um, I've always, yeah, talking about, going back to you talking about making people feel uncomfortable, um, that's where I've started to let go of that because, yes, people do need to be, I, I, this is what I believe, people do need to be made to feel uncomfortable so that they can understand um so that's where that's where i come from with what, what i do now so i i, I try yeah 
well, if if I do offend people, I offend people purely because that's where I've got to um, get people to understand. So it's not in not like a hey, I'm going. I want to offend you because I'm going to offend you. It's the making people understand. So that's where I came with my ten things about disability. So I'd love to ask you, what are your ten things that you wish people knew about disability? My ten things are. Firstly, that we are all different. It is not one size fits all. What works for one person doesn't work for everyone. Some disabilities are invisible. My disabilities are invisible. So a lot of people, you won't be able to tell just from looking at us that we might be having some difficulties, but it doesn't mean we're not. Avoid inspiration porn. Now, what does that mean? Well, inspiration porn is a term coined by the wonderful late Stella Young, who gave a wonderful TED talk. Can't remember the title of it, but it's something like I won't be your inspiration. And inspiration porn is when, for example, someone said to me, oh, you've got to work on the bus. Well done. Going to work on the bus is not inspiration. It's me getting to work. And that idea that if a person with disability does something that anyone else would do, it's somehow amazing, inspirational, and aren't you wonderful? There are parts of my journey which are genuinely inspirational, but getting the bus to go to work is not one of them. Don't talk down to us. We're not children. I was at an event at Parliament House a few years ago and I was with some non-disabled people and I was there um, as their guest um, in order to celebrate their organisation and there were similar organisations being celebrated at this event. So there were lots of people to talk to and a lot of them were very corporate, high-level, important, important people. Everyone's important, but, you know, people that think they're important, uh, politicians like that. And I got talking to this... Um, this woman who worked for one of the big banks and we had quite a nice conversation and one of the people I was with from the organization we were celebrating was standing very close to me and this bank person went up to my colleague and said with full earshot of me oh she's very articulate isn't she um, that's talking down to me even though she wasn't talking down to me she was talking down about me and it was not okay we have the full range of genders, especially autistic people. We are very frequently gender diverse, but other people with disability as well. We're not all cisgender by a long shot. We have the full range of sexualities. We are not all asexual. That is really important. <laughs> Sexuality is a political thing for people with disability. It is a political thing to have a sexuality in a world that thinks none of us do. We do everything that everyone else does as well. And it isn't inspiring all the time when we're doing it. Often it's just things we need to do. We need better representation. You know, when somebody in a TV show that's playing a wheelchair user is not a wheelchair user, that's not okay. When an autistic character is not being played by an autistic person, that's not okay. We need better representation across the board, not just in media and things like that, in politics, in civic life, in academia, in the workplace. We need better representation because we're not there yet. We don't always need help. If someone says, no, thank you, I don't need your help, then please respect that. We don't really need people forcing themselves to be helpful. 
we are very capable a lot of the time. We do incredible things. Um, even if we find doing incredible things difficult, we still do, and that's okay. And I've got an 11th because there yes. was an 11th cropped up, which is probing questions. Don't <laughs> ask probing questions. If you would not ask something of your mother or your auntie, please don't ask it of us. We don't need to be asked, ooh, how do you have sex? That's not okay. That is really not okay. Probing questions, not cool. Even if someone is a close friend, it's still not cool. If you wouldn't ask it of your mum or your auntie, don't ask it of anyone. And that's my 11 things. Excellent. I love those. Uh, there's a couple of those that I'd love to talk about a little bit further. Uh, firstly, the inspiration porn. So, so, and this is something that I kind of struggled with is like, you know, saying, oh, you're so inspiring. Uh, like people start telling me that. And because of the fact that um, there is that inspiration porn out there, it's hard to get people to, to understand without offending them that it's, that what they're, that they're, they're, getting inspired by the wrong thing um and and I, and I think that a lot of that goes a lot of it goes back to um yeah just just how they've been brought up and that kind of thing and and this is what i i think it's to do with the whole stereotype being two-dimensional that they're surprised at that those things so um that there's yeah i i struggle trying to explain it to friends or to people what is inspired what's okay and what's not because then they get scared of actually saying things are inspirational and things are like some some things it's like i'm happy for example like i do powerlifting and i'm happy if someone's inspired by the fact that um that it you know, that I go out and do um, powerlifting or whatever, if they can see that and it makes them want to do stuff. Yeah. Where, how, how would you explain it to someone of what is and what's not? Like, I know you talked about the bus, the going to work thing, but like, it's actually quite tricky to define mm. because sometimes one thing will be offensive and another time it won't. And yes. it is quite line yeah i just if i feel icky when someone says oh that's so inspirational often it's if it's a throwaway comment it's like about something you're doing oh it's so inspiring um but yeah it is really difficult because sometimes someone can say it and it's like really not okay mm -hmm. and then other times someone can say a similar thing and it is okay i think it's the intent with which it's meant yeah it's like in a belittling way, it's like, oh, you shouldn't be able to do this, but you can, so I'm inspired. Yes, yeah, and I, I feel sorry for able-bodied people in that particular respect because it's such a, it is, it's such a tricky line. Yeah, it is, and and I think it's go with the feel. It's one of those things that feels wrong, probably is, mm. but it is. I don't think there are hard and cut rules to this is inspiration point, this is not. Mm. Often there's quite a blurred line, mm. which is difficult because then, you know, you don't know whether you should pull someone up on it <laughs> or whether you let it go. Often I just let it go because I think, you know, yeah. it's, um, I don't have the energy or the spoons to, to argue with it. Yes, well, yeah. Whatever. 
It's terrible. I'm an advocate. I should be constantly on. I should be constantly vigilant, but I'm not. Uh, I'm tired. Yeah, and that's another thing. Like, um, talking about um, like being ableist and things like that. Uh, you know how like these at the moment this year, we've because of um, Black Lives Matters, we've seen a lot of changes in regards to dropping of band names because it referenced um, particular um, times. I, I like Dixie Chicks. They're no longer Dixie Chicks. They're the Chicks because Dixie re- referenced um, insulting. It was insulting to Black Lives Matters, etc. And so, yeah, basically, um, and even like Disclosure. Did you watch Disclosure with uh, Laverne Cox on um, on Netflix? No, I didn't see that. I'll have oh, that was on. fascinating. So it was a documentary. Uh, it was about, um, yeah, it was about, about tra- transgender um, representation in the media, and it was talking, yeah. and it was talking about how, like, for example, um, you know, there'd be men dress up as women, all that kind of stuff. And how it actually is insulting, but we've grown up thinking it was comedy. Um, And even like there was one woman and she, (laughs) it's horrible, but this woman, she took a part in a TV show. She's a transgender woman. And when she watched the episode back, they'd actually changed the octave of her voice. Like, so she came across as manly and that was not the way she spoke at all. Um, So, and and so now it's made me look at the disability side of things. And I'm like, there's so much stuff on TV now that I'm like, oh, wow, that would not, that doesn't, it's going to be interesting to see when that part starts to, um, become more of an, an issue as well because it's like I'm watching it and thinking, oh, well, that's not cool. Whereas I used to laugh at this stuff because I just, that's what I grew up thinking. Yeah. It's like that show Scrubs. I used to think that was hilarious. But yeah. there's all these jokes about transgender people and suicide and stuff. And I just think, wow, it's not, not okay at all. Isn't like, that that's really I, I and like I used to I, I haven't watched Scrubs in years, but I used to watch it and like I've yeah, I often pick up on that stuff. So that's that's interesting. Like even um recently and there was there wasn't too much trans stuff, but what there was was, you know, talk calling someone he she yes. and stuff like that. Not okay. No. But lots lots of comedy about suicide. And I'm just thinking, as a mental health advocate, I don't think that's okay. No. I, like, I mean, I'm all for people talking about suicide, but not making fun of it. Mm. It's, not, it's not a helpful conversation. No. And that's interesting. It's like we've, we've seen to, we've, in some areas we've come so far in regards to awareness about stuff and then you look at things and they're not that old and there's like, wow, how the hell did that get past? Um, oh, absolutely. It was like there was another one. I can't think what the movie was. Oh, Napoleon Dynamite. You know, oh, yeah. So, that in- yeah, that's an interesting one. You should watch that again, like, now, like, in current times, yeah. because watching it the first time it came out, thought it was hilarious. Watching it now, and it's actually really, it's, to me, it's really sad. It's like this, this kid who's different, and yeah. everyone laughs at him, and it's just like, 
you know, yeah, it's like, it's, it, it actually made me really sad. I'm just like, no, nah, it's not cool. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so it's just, yeah, it's good. And, like, I was watching this other documentary earlier um, this morning called Rising, Rising Phoenix, and it was about the Paralympics. It's on Netflix. And even that, like, just um, just seeing, like, the difference in, like, even now, like, it's interesting how disability insert like in, in in that particular instance like i've got thoughts around the whole um paralympics thing that uh, that i'm actually unpacking at the moment because i completely blew my mind that documentary uh but basically um think looking at we've come so far in some areas with disability disability rights etc and yeah we've still got so much so much to go it's so weird it's a weird space yeah i often think it'd be nice if i could retire like if i could just not do advocacy anymore because didn't need doing like yeah we'd actually achieved all we need to achieve but when i look at that i mean you look at the civil rights movement in the u.s which started a long time ago yeah and it's still um, we haven't achieved equity or respect yes yeah in all those years. So maybe disability advocacy is one of those things that's just going to be ongoing for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah, attitudes are really quite poor and it's quite patchy. So I talk to young people generally, not always, but generally they're very good on gender diversity, they're quite good on disability, um, they're quite good on race, you know, all of those things. But then... It's not entirely that. So maybe the next generation that comes up will bring in more positive attitudes. But then our generation, we think that we're doing well. Yes. And I'm not sure that we are. And my parents' generation, no. Not all, I mean, not that all baby boomers are prejudiced or anything like that. Mm. But there are definite cultural differences between the different generations around mm-hmm. advocacy and equity issues yeah and i'm yeah. hoping that as time goes on things will improve but i don't think it's going to be the case that we can give up doing this anytime soon i suspect our work will be required for the foreseeable future yeah because like i mean the whole advocacy thing is interesting because um i think i mentioned to you another time is that someone said to me oh i love your advocacy work and i'm like hang on I actually put, I was like, I'm not an advocate. I'm a, uh, I didn't, I just, that's all I said to myself. I'm not an advocate. Um, yeah. And cause I, I don't think of myself as an advocate because like to me, the advocates are the ones that go out hand, like posters, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff are out there like doing, you know, sit-ins like with Crip Camp, um, talking about all the American civil rights movement, uh, disability rights movements. That to me was advocacy. Now I think like what you just said earlier about narratives, that kind of stuff, that's like, I'm now actually kind of getting more comfortable. I wouldn't, I don't call myself an advocate because, well, I haven't sort of been like sharing my story long enough to, to be, to, uh, to live. Uh, yeah, that's for me anyway. That's just my, 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 my issue. Um, but yeah, basically, yeah, I, I'm feeling like now that, yeah, the whole narrative thing, being sharing my story that uh, uh, for a while there 
I remember thinking, or I was writing and I'm like, oh, actually, I don't like this feeling. I'm feeling too raw. Like people are yeah. seeing parts of me that I wanted to just like, you know, just shut up and keep, keep down. Um, but now it's just like, yeah, actually, I keep, need to keep writing because it's, yeah. I think the fact that it feels so raw is the reason yeah. why it needs to come out. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I, think, I mean, I never sort of called myself an advocate, but other mm. people did. That's right. Stuck. Yeah. Um, not an advocate in the same way that a lot of other advocates are. And mm. I'm not, I mean, I'm a public servant. I can't be political. Um, yes, well, that's true. I you know, not reflect well on my job. And I do <laughs> love my job. And I don't really want to jeopardise that because, you know, pays the rent and, um, and I do enjoy it and I'd be sad if I didn't have it to do. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not really a big activist-y political, you know, I never have been. Mm -hmm. um, and I do, I tell my story and it, my story is political, but not in a big P political way, really. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it, yeah, it's different, but it's taken a long time to work out what I do. Um, I've been doing it for a very long time now. I mean, I, I wrote my first book in 2005. That's 15 years. Wow. Yes. Very few people were in the space back then. Very few people were in the autism advocacy space in Australia. We had Wen, we had Polly, um, Kathy Hoopman, I think, had written one of the books. A few other people. Catherine Anea has been around for longer than me. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, um, not most of the people now have come into the scene in the last five or 10 years. And then there's quite a lot of younger people who are in different platforms to me. So using things like TikTok and stuff like that. So okay. there's someone, someone for every element of, of autism advocacy, I guess. Um, I get a bit amazed by all these young people doing incredible things. Um, I'm very impressed. Uh, it makes me very happy. I think, you know, I think I don't have to worry about, you know, needing to do this for the rest of eternity because there's people doing it just as well or better than me yeah. and make a difference. I like doing it, which is, you know, I'm, I'm not going to stop anytime soon. Mm -hmm. But I do really like that there's a whole generation of younger people coming up, which is fantastic. Yeah, 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 it's amazing. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for being uh, on the podcast today, Yen. Um, it's yeah, it's been it's been a great great being able to chat to you. Just and yeah, being able to show that disability um, is just so multidimensional. And yeah, yeah, really, really, really enjoy speaking to you. Could speak for hours. Yeah. No, that was, that was a really lovely conversation. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you.